a little housekeeping duty here, myself prepared. Well, good morning, good morning this morning. Pray that your morning has been encouraging to you. We pray that you are, again, find, you find uh, that your week has been encouraging. It's always good uh, to be with God's people, is it not? It's always good to be together. With the advent, as you well know, with the advent of social media, we have been more and more pulled, pulled away from one another and toward an online persona. Many people have just a completely different online persona than they have in real life. They, they have this, and a lot of people are what we call keyboard warriors, if you will. And today, you know, you could just have a completely different life online. Uh, we can go even online for friendships, and, and we can even watch church online without, without ever leaving our homes. In some cases, in many cases, uh, the, the reason why we continue to have uh, church online or to, to broadcast our church online is it's helped God's people to stay plugged into body life. When they're gone, they're able to watch, and, and when they can't, they can't attend the gathering, when our saints are sick and, and can't attend for other reasons, we've, we've had this content online to keep them up to date with our church body. And I'm thankful for the technology that allows us to put doctrinally sound material online to encourage the saints. Uh, we do, as you know, we do the podcast now, Keith and I, and, and we also have the Facebook Live that we do, and, and we're talking about some other ways of, of doing that. I'm thankful for that. But we need to be aware of the dangers of what we're seeing with the advent of social media and with the hyper-connectedness online. And we must then recognize the, the changing landscape of the world around us. You need to recognize that life uh, moves quickly in the 21st century, does it not? Much more quickly than it did when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. Just a completely different world that we live in. It just seems like that every, every month something different comes around the bend. And I do my best, I do my best, Keith and I both do our best to inform you when we see major concerns for the church. At times, even I've been accused of being too political because I'm, I, I do try to give you, uh, you know, information that you need to know about what's going on in the world. And I, I don't take that charge uh, lightly. I, I don't believe I think you know this. I don't believe that the, the church should be directly involved in the political system. I do believe that we need to be aware, though, of what's happening around us, and we need to be aware of the dangers. With that, I believe there is something, and it fits, you'll see, I think, this morning, it fits with our sermon, uh, but I believe there's something you need to be aware of. Uh, Keith and I just recorded a podcast last week on something called Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Some of you may I've heard of that term, and many of you probably haven't. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your feedback. But if you haven't heard of that term, I promise you will in the very near future. Personally, I hadn't heard of Christian nationalism by name until just a few months ago. Uh, the term has come into use after the situation surrounding the events at the Capitol of January 6th, 2021, and now it's all over mainstream and Christian media. I, think I don't think I'm overstating things by saying the charge associated with the term, especially the charge coming from the, the media, it may be the greatest attack on the church in our lifetimes. I'll let that kind of hang there. You see, the church is being labeled by 
the mainstream media and by the government as being, so the church is being labeled as being hotbeds for extremism. Said another way, there are people in influential places who are trying to implicate the church in extremist behavior. They're using the actions of a few to broad brush the church. Now here's the sinister part. This is what's sinister, in my, in my opinion anyway. They're tying truths that every Christian, true Christian, believes to the potential for continued extremist actions. Do you get that? So if you, here, here's, let me give you an example. If you believe that our nation should follow the laws of God as embodied by the Ten Commandments, then you are being labeled as a Christian nationalist and a potential extremist. Frankly, I'm not sure how deep this will go into the church, but it has the potential to create major problems that could very well be an avenue for the persecution of the church going forward. There are already fractures, or in the words of Bodhi Bauckham, there are fault lines within the visible church. Those fault lines were revealed during the aftermath of the George Floyd situation and have been highlighted by what is called critical social justice or the critical social justice movement. According to Bauckham, the landscape of the church has been divided into basically two competing worldviews. The critical social justice view and the biblical justice view. Now you can guess which one we're on. We definitely are on the side of biblical justice. Uh, But he says this, he says, there are two competing worldviews in this current cultural moment. One is the critical social justice movement, her view, which assumes that the world is divided between oppressors and the oppressed. So basically, the white, white heterosexual males, heterosexual males, are generally viewed as the oppressor, and the other is um, the other is what I will refer to. This is Bakum speaking. I will refer to as the biblical justice view in order to avoid what I accuse the social justice crowd of doing, which is immediately casting its opponents as being opposed to justice. So he's basically saying there's two views, okay? Now, here's, the, here's what's going on. As we're trying to sort that one out among ourselves, now we're dealing with something called Christian nationalism. Now, as you may have guessed, the media is picking up on these themes by casting this as white Christian nationalism. You see what I'm, what I'm getting at? In other words... Critical race theory and intersectionality are being repackaged and are used as a further attack on the church. And they have deemed this white Christian nationalism. Now that white part, in quotes, the white part of that, is critical because Christian nationalism is being framed as an attempt to protect white patriarchy. Basically, the whiteness of the church. Now, this isn't a new playbook. This isn't a new playbook for those of proposing the church. You know, even if you go back to the Roman emperor Nero, he needed a scapegoat when Rome was burned in 64 AD. Many had blamed him for starting the fire for his own wicked purposes. And it has even been said that he, that he played the fiddle as Rome burned. Now, we, you know, we can't be sure exactly what happened. It probably burned on its own, but for whatever reason, whatever accident. But he was being blamed. So the historian 
Tacitus says that Nero blamed the Christians living in Rome in order to deflect the blame from himself. Tacitus said, said, said of their treatment that he says this, mockery of every sort was added to their death, covered with skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished and were nailed to crosses and were doomed to the flames and burnt and, and to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired, in quotes. But here's what we have to understand. In the first and second centuries of the church, Christians were being accused of extremist behavior. They were being accused of being atheists, funny enough, because they refused to worship the emperor or the Roman Roman pantheon of pagan gods. They were being accused of being sexually immoral because of the seemingly secretive nature of their meetings and because of rumors about what took place at what was called the love feast. They were being accused of being cannibals because of a misunderstanding of the Lord's table in which it was rumored that the Christians drank literal blood and ate literal flesh. They were even being accused of being insurrectionists. Now this is the, this is the tie to our current situation, the current cultural moment, if you will. They were being called insurrectionists because they refused to worship the emperor and they openly gave their highest allegiance to Christ and not to the Roman government. Now that should sound familiar to you with a little twist. In our case, we are being accused of trying to subject the government and all Americans to Christ and His law. We're doing this because that is, He is where our allegiance lies, right? I mean, we, we want to obey Him. And, and, you know, we, we are, we, we are one that he really is, uh, where our allegiance lies. We cannot deny that. We can't deny our allegiance to Christ. We can't deny even that we believe as Christians, we believe that God blesses nations that live according to his laws. And, and we can't deny that we're patriotic. Most of us, I would assume are patriotic. Our allegiance though is to Christ and Christ alone Yet we love our nation and we want to see our nation blessed. That's Christianity in in America. But we're accused of serving, this is what is being accused of us, we're accused of serving a white Jesus and are trying to protect our white way of life. That's the accusation. And do you understand the broad brush that's happening here? That basically we're going about our lives doing what God would expect us to do but they're saying that that makes us these dangerous, potentially dangerous extremists. Now, let me clarify something. At GBC, we believe that all governments, civil governments, are accountable to Christ. We believe that. We believe that God blesses those governments to the extent that their laws and judgments reflect God's moral law. And we believe that God will judge any government that departs from His moral law. And he uses other nations to judge them. And he may use wicked nations to do so. We see that even in the pages of Scripture. We've been reading through Isaiah. In the early parts of Isaiah, we saw that clearly. And we believe also that God saves people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. We have that even here in this body because of our proximity to to, uh, the university here. And as such, we believe that racism is absolutely evil. Now, but we don't believe, this is what we don't believe. We don't believe it is the church's role 
in the church age to dictate how a government should act. As such, we call the government to account when their actions don't reflect God's moral law. Does that make sense? We call them to account, right? And, and, and by the way, you, are, you, you can call your representative and tell them if you think they're her, if you think that the government is not acting in the way that it ought to according to God's law. We should do that. We should do that. We should warn them if we see God's impending judgment for their actions, right? I mean, if they're doing something that's against God's law, we should warn them that they will be judged for it, right? God will judge them. And we should then obey and rebel against the government when they seek to remove our right to worship and to force us to do anything counter to God's Word. That's that, we should do that. We should do Now, we should not take that lightly. And we should resist and call out as evil racism where it exists. And we're talking about true racism. But God does not call us to stand in the role of civil government. Now, here's what Here's my point and why I'm bringing all this up. I want you to be aware of the current shifting landscape within the culture and within the church. You are going to hear other churches, churches in our community, that are going to pick up on these things. They're going to pick up on these themes, and some of them will. Some of them will double down on being Christian nationalists. They'll take that as a badge of honor. Some will do this in the name of fighting for our God-given freedoms. Others will argue that the government is accountable to God, therefore it is our role to Christianize the government. That's what they'll say. Other churches will stand firmly with the world. We all have heard those churches, right? They'll come out and they'll speak against Christian involvement with the government, including voting our conscience. They will stand against churches that speak speak out against sin, especially against the mainstream talking points, and I don't have to bring those up because y'all know what they are. And they will continue to focus on social justice while ignoring biblical justice. That's what some churches will do. So some churches will double down on being a Christian nationalist. Some churches are going are, are to stand with the world. And other churches like us, my prayer is other churches like us, will stand firmly on God's Word. They will continue to continue to raise God-fearing families. They will love others, especially those of the household of faith. They will participate in the voting process by voting their conscience and, and by calling their representatives to account. And they will continue to see the world through the lens of biblical justice. Through the lens of biblical justice. Sadly, though, this is, again, why I'm bringing this up. If this continues on the current trajectory, there will be further conflict between, between churches. This whole, the, you know, Vody Bauckham and the fault lines that, we've been, that he's talked about is going to continue, and we're going to see it. We're going to continue seeing brother against brother, and I, it's, it saddens me to say that, and I, but I do believe it's true. Here's something else, though. The world will seek to use these things against us. They will seek. I can promise you it's hap- it, it is happening and it will continue to happen that brother will be pitted against brother by the world because they're going to pick up on these themes and they're going to use them. As a matter of fact, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I would say that they probably are, are the ones that are driving the wedge even now. 
even now. So, we just need to be aware. We need to pray. But that is the tie to today's sermon as we continue our study in, the, in Matthew titled, The King and His Glory. Today we're going to continue our preliminary look at the Sermon on the Mounts. Earlier in, our, in my comments, I said we must recognize the changing landscape of the world around us. Well, I hope to show you, I hope to show you that as Jesus went up on the mountain to preach this sermon, which we call the Sermon on the Mounts, he had the per- perfect vista to see and to understand the landscape around him. The sermon he preached gives us then the perfect vista by which we are to understand our own culture. This is the information that Jesus gives in this sermon is eminently useful for us to understand our own culture and for us to understand how we are to interact with our own culture. So let me get started this morning by praying, and then I'm going to read a little bit of the text. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning, Lord, that you would be glorified by our actions, our attitudes, Father, that as we face a world that seems to be spinning more and more out of control, that we would look to the truths found in Scripture, and very specifically, even this morning, that we would look to the truths found in the Sermon on the Mount, the truths of of another kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that, that flies in the face of of every culture, every man-made culture. Father, that a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that is coming, and that we can trust in. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read this morning, you follow along with me, starting in chapter 4, verse 23. And I'm going to read through 5-2 as we start this morning. And Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large, king, and large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, we'll stop right there. Now, as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, as we've said many times, it is vital that we understand Matthew's theme. Matthew's theme you should be on your mind even right now. What is it? Jesus is the King. He's the King. Therefore, it is vital that we recognize the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. You may recall from last week that it, this is truly the King's Manifesto, or the King's Kingdom Manifesto. Now, last week we saw that Jesus reveals several difficult truths about His kingdom. And the reason why they're difficult is because they fly in the face of this current world and its system. 
I won't take time to review those, but they will be the basis of our study through this sermon. But I do want you to recognize that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed that His kingdom is completely different than the kingdom of this world. He, that, is, that is the reason the truths He reveals are so difficult for us to understand and for us to live, because they're completely antithetical to this world system. You see, we live in a world system that is dominated by Satan. He's, it's, a, it's a demonic system. The world system uh, to, to come is a completely different one from the current one. Therefore, Matthew 9, 17, uh, Jesus says that, that new wine doesn't go into fresh wineskins. I mean, new wine goes into fresh wineskins. That, that when we put new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins are ruined. Jesus perfectly understood these things, and he perfectly understood the difficulties faced by his disciples as we interact with the world. It's a completely different system. And again, you could say that as Jesus went up on the mountain to teach his disciples, he had a perfect vista to see this system. He was able to see and understand the landscape around him. As a matter of fact, as Jesus ascended the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount, his kingdom manifesto, I would argue he had four critical landscapes in view. Four critical landscapes in view. Now, uh, understand we're, we're picking up on the fact that he went up on the mountain and there's a vista from the mountain. But Jesus was seeing much more than that going on. First, there was the geographical landscape that we need to understand. Second, there's the biblical landscape. Third, there's the political landscape. And fourth, there's the religious landscape. Now, we need to grasp these four critical landscapes because they are generally, that is, applicable in our current day. Now, let's look at the first critical landscape that Jesus had in view. You need to grasp Jesus' view of the geographical landscape. Now, it's interesting. I've actually been to where the Sermon on the Mount where we think the Sermon on the Mount was preached, and it's an interesting place because it forms a, a, a nice little bowl there that, you can, that, that, that would set up really nicely for uh, being able to speak to a large amount of people. Now, now we've, we've looked at this, though, in past sermons, but I want to bring it back to your attention that Jesus, and part of the reason why I, I started reading in, in Matthew 4.23 is because Jesus had settled in Galilee on the northwest side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. He was about... 80 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, you may recall, you should recall, that Jerusalem was the religious center of Israel. Now, Galilee was different than Jerusalem. It's different. It, the region of Galilee was characterized by a large population of non-Jews. The, the arrival of the, of, of the Messiah, according to Matthew, the arrival of the Messiah into this region was an expression of great hope for the Gentiles, they, that they too may be rescued out of darkness as His light dawned on them. That is uh, what Matthew's point is in Matthew 4.16. So as such, Galilee was a more rural setting that was more open to differing ideas than the religious elite in Jerusalem. This, this gave Jesus the opportunity to preach and teach without as much opposition as He would have generated in Jerusalem preaching the same content. Now, ultimately, we know that He did generate opposition, but this, there was a, a period of time that He was able to do this in Galilee uh, largely unhindered. 
He was able to build his ministry through his preaching and teaching and, and healing of disease and, and, and sickness. And he did this with, without as much resistance during what we would call this critical early stage of his public ministry. Now, as we will see, Jesus did this because he understood the landscape around him. Look at your text in verses Matthew 4, verse 24 and 25. Now, even though he was in this rural setting... News about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill and and those who were suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. So Jesus could not avoid becoming well-known as he went around the countryside. His his healing ministry uh, showed that he was actually, actually showed that he was the authentic, he was authentically from God, and that his words could be trusted. But but the healing ministry drew much attention, and, and, but yet his geographical location, being in Galilee, helped to insulate him from too much scrutiny from the religious elite during these critical times. Now, look at your text again in verse 25, Matthew 4, 25, it says that, that large crowds were following him from Galilee, so right there where he was at, but from Decapolis and from Jerusalem even, Jerusalem and Judea, so Jerusalem and the greater area around Jerusalem and from beyond the Jordan. So even though Jesus was avoiding at this moment in time, according to the Father's plan, he was avoiding Jerusalem, I want you to notice that people were talking, that that word was spreading, and that he was even becoming known in Jerusalem, which would eventually draw the attention from the religious elite there. And that's important to recognize as we, as we move forward. Now, I want you to briefly look at Matthew 5.1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we know the crowds were following Jesus, mostly because he was going around. Uh, he was teaching and preaching, but he was healing all these diseases, and so he was becoming well-known, and so word of his ministry was spreading uh, throughout Galilee and beyond. Therefore, people came here now to see what was going on. Many of them were seeking healing from their various diseases. So Jesus, it seems, took the opportunity to give, uh, to preach specific truths about his kingdom. Now notice it says that he went up on the mountain. Now, last week I told you briefly, I, I told you that this should remind us of Moses ascending the mountain in Sinai to receive the law from Yahweh. Now, I believe that, that Matthew was intentional in pointing this out. Now, you may recall from our study that Matthew is actually writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He's, he's writing to a primarily Hebrew audience, if you will. And, and we should recognize that this isn't the first time that Matthew has alluded to a connection between Moses and Jesus. You, you may recall in our study from Matthew 2.13 that, that evil King Herod sought to kill Jesus, but in response... In response, when, when, he, when he was foiled, he had all of the male babies put to death in an attempt to kill him. Now, according to Matthew 2.16, according to that, after he became enraged, that Herod became enraged and he slew all these male children. And, and, in, and you may also recall that, that Joseph and Mary went to Egypt, right? They went to Egypt to flee from from. Um, Herod. Now, as they fled Herod, 
Joseph and Mary, again, went to Egypt where they stayed until, until Herod died. And then he says, in the words of Matthew, this was done to fulfill the words of the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, the, the, for the Hebrew, for the, for the Jewish uh, hearer, listener, they would have automatically thought of who? Well, they would have thought of Israel. But who led Israel? Moses. So again, we see that Matthew is connecting the life of Moses with the life of Jesus. The Hebrew of Matthew's day would have easily made this connection. Therefore, when Matthew speaks of Jesus going up on the mountain, his original audience would have automatically thought of who else? Well, who else went up on the mountain? Moses. Moses. Well, just listen to Matthew, or Exodus 24.12. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so we see that, that Jesus went up on the mountain and began to teach. Well, what is he teaching? He's teaching the law of the kingdom. He's teaching the law of the kingdom. So Yahweh called Moses to go up on the mountain to receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And I believe that Matthew wants his readers to understand that he's making a reference to the time when Moses received the law of God from Yahweh. And in that case, he went up to receive the law. In this case, Jesus went up to give the law to his disciples. And we see that connection as we read through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now let me give you one other connection to Moses. There's little doubt that the people identified Jesus as a great teacher. We see that even at the end of Matthew 7, that he taught with them, taught them as one having authority. So they saw him as being a, a great teacher. They probably wondered if he was a prophet. Uh, when Matthew says that he went up on the mountain and sat down, in those days we have to recognize that, so Matthew says specifically he sat down to teach. In those days the prophet sat down to teach. And so, so the New Testament then, excuse me, that this would have this would have led them to believe or or, or to think of uh, he was the, him being the one that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Moses said in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, and you shall listen to him. And so the New Testament actually interprets this verse as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Therefore, I would argue that when Matthew refers to Jesus going up on the mountain to sit down and to teach, look at your, look at your text in, in Matthew 5 2. You see, he opened his mouth and he began to teach. So when Matthew refers to Jesus going up on the mountain, him sitting down to teach, his, he wants his readers to understand that Jesus is the prophet like Moses from Yahweh, whom Yahweh has raised up. Now, you might ask, if this is in Jesus' mind as He ascends the mountain to begin to teach. Well, there's nothing that, happens, that has happened that happens outside of the Father's plan. I believe, I would argue that Jesus intentionally went up on the mountain to teach. He knew this knowing exactly what Matthew would write. He did it in this specific place for the specific purpose of showing that He was, in fact, the prophet that, that, Matthew, or that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. And he did it because, he, because it shows that he, in fact, is the Messiah. Friends, even the setting around Jesus is, is critical for us to understand. 
You may ask specifically, how does this apply to us? Well, God has placed us, placed you specifically in this church here at Grace Bible Church in Gainesville. He has placed this church here in Gainesville. We need to, we need to grasp that He has a, a purpose for us. He has a, a purpose for each and every one of you. He has a purpose that He is, it's, it's a, a plan that He has from before the foundation of the world that he, he has a purpose for you and He has a purpose for this church right here in Gainesville. And we can't miss that. That as Jesus sat down to preach uh, this sermon, that, that even His surrounding, being in Galilee, even the surrounding of, and the mountain that He went up on and how He did this and how He sat down, all had meaning. Every bit of it. Let's look at the second critical landscape that Jesus had in view. You need to, get, to grasp Jesus' view of the religious landscape. So we saw the geographical landscape. Now let's look at the religious landscape. As Jesus went up on the mountain to teach, I would argue that he perfectly understood the blend of religious backgrounds among the people. Even, even his disciples had come from, from uh, varied religious situations. There were many people in what we would call full-time ministry. We call that, that you know, full-time ministry when somebody's devoted their lives to, to religious endeavors. In fact, in fact, there were four primary groups of these religious professionals. There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Zealots, and there were the, 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 Essen, the, uh, the Essenes. Now, you might say, that the Sadducees were the liberals of Jesus' day. They were primarily aristocratic. They believed in their own interpretation of the Torah. Therefore, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, the physical resurrection of the body, since it isn't directly or explicitly mentioned in the Torah. Now, you might say that the Sadducees were the progressive, uh, uh, were the progressives, if you will, uh, religiously progressive, and they were more focused on the here and now. They were more focused on the here and now. Now, the Pharisees and, and the scribes, uh, they were almost synonymous. Uh, they were, the, the, the Pharisees were the religious rivals of the Sadducees. So this was the, the second group. And, and in Jesus' day, they were the leading party. They had seated themselves, if you will, in the chair of Moses. In Matthew 23, 2, uh, it says that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in, in the, the, the chair of Moses. What that, that means is, is that they had much influence over the common people. And as such, their practices overshadowed and dictated even the practices of the, the Sadducees. They believed then that the right way of living was a mix of divine laws and, and religious tradition. Uh, they, therefore, they were meticulous they were absolutely meticulous in keeping what they understood to be the Mosaic law. And they were exacting in their observation of traditions that were handed down by the rabbis through, through the centuries. So that's the, that's the Pharisees. And again, the scribes are, are almost synonymous with them. Now, the zealots. The zealots were the, like the Christian nationalists of our day. You know, so that... Again, the, the, when I use the, I'm using the, the term Christian nationalist, I'm using it like the media would use it. They're the extremists of our day. They were, they were fanatical. Uh, they, were, 
They were nationalists who thought that right religions was based on, a radical, on radical political activism. The, these revolutionaries looked down on other Jews who, who refused to take up arms against, the, against Rome. Now, the Essenes were, were ascetics. They were separatists. They were, they were the monks of Jesus' day. They, they believed that the right religion led to a separation from the rest of society. They were, they, they were not of the world, and, and they, completely even, they completely even avoided being in the world. They, they led uh, austere lives, and, and they went to remote areas. You can actually, even today, visit one such area known as Qumran, which is uh, you know, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. This settlement, uh, you can see this settlement even today. It sets on the, the, the northwest side of the Dead Sea. In the words of in the words of John MacArthur, as he describes these four groups, and he does it in a succinct way, he says this, the Pharisees said, go back, meaning go back to the tradition and to the Torah. The, the Sadducees said, go ahead. They were the progressives. The Essenes said, go away, like be separate, get away. The Zealots said, go against, we're fighting, we're fighting this thing out. The, the Pharisees then were traditionalists, the Sadducees were modernists, the Essenes were separatists, and the Zealots were activists. That's, uh, again, end quote, um, that's John MacArthur's quote. Now, as you can see, as you should be able to see, these groups represent the same primary types of religious factions in the world today, even in Christianity. We see them even again in our own culture. Now, we can learn much from how, from how Jesus handles these different groups. His way, his way didn't match, His way, the way of the kingdom, didn't match any of these groups. His response to the Sadducees, the modernist of the day, was that true and godly religion is God's way, not man's way. His response to the Pharisees, or the traditionalists of the, of the day, was that true and godly spirituality is, in, is primarily internal and from the heart and has nothing to do with ex- external actions. But it, 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 external actions alone, it's the heart that drives those external actions, and, and it's the heart that matters, ultimately. So that's the Pharisees. To the zealots of the day, the activists of the day, uh, he, he would say that we show our devotion to God by worshiping Him from the heart, not by our activism. Not by taking up the sword, not by what we do and in, in, in fighting it out, if you will, with everybody around us, but it, it, we show it by our devotion to Him by worshiping Him from the heart. And the Essenes, the separatist of the day, his message would be, yeah, we're in the world. I mean, we exist in this world, but we're not of the world. We're not, in, we're not of it, we're in it. But it, it doesn't do us any good to separate from it. Now, Here's what we have to recognize. And as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we have to recognize that Jesus' message was not of this world. It was of God's kingdom. Therefore, His message had something to say to every man-centered way of thinking. Even today, that, that we, we, are, we still see, do we not still see the separatist of the day, Right? Do we not see the activists of the day? Do we not see the traditionalists of the day? Do we not see the progressives of the day? Those, still, those general groups still exist within Christianity. But Jesus' message has something to say to every one of them because they're all a man-centered way of thinking. 
And the, the primary message was that the way of the kingdom is a matter of the heart. That true religion is not a matter of man's philosophies or man's way or man's politics. It's not a matter of man's traditions or rituals. It's not a matter of your location, where you're located and, and what's around you. It's not a matter of your place in the world physically. It's not a matter of man's military might or ability. That true religion is a matter of how you love God and how you love people. Jesus summed this up by saying that you shall, in Matthew 22, 37-39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then he says, and this is the great and foremost commandment. That is the, that is the great and foremost commandment. You are to love the Lord your God. Now, he says this, the second is like it, like unto it, meaning that, that it's a, the second, it, it, it's, it's, it's a great, the great second great commandment that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says that sums up the law and the prophets, and that's exactly what these groups were missing. That's exactly what they were missing, and I'm telling you today, and you know, I brought up Christian nationalism and what we're facing. I'm telling you today that that is still the same mistake that's being made today. Same error. Same error. No matter what side you land on. So, the key to understanding this and understanding the Sermon on the Mount, and I said this last week, is to understand Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.20. In Matthew 5.20, he says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, kingdom Christianity is not a matter of what you do in this world, who you are in this world, having your way in this world, or separating yourself from this world. It's not a matter of those things. It's about having a right view of God's holiness and His worthiness, and that right view leading to a right view of loving Him and serving Him. And oh, by the way, if you have the right view of loving God and serving God, that leads you to have a right view of serving your fellow man because it causes you to love and serve them in a way that pleases the Lord. That's the point. That's what's happening in the, I mean, I've just summed up the Sermon on the Mount. We can move on. Chapter 8. Y'all know better than that. I love the words of John MacArthur in this. He says, right theology is essential. So being contemporary, so, so are being contemporary in the right way, separating ourselves from worldliness and taking stands on moral issues. I told you earlier, right, that we need to be willing to take a stand. We have to say what is sin and what is not sin. And we have to be willing, I, I would argue we need to be willing to call a representative and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. If, they, if, if it doesn't match God's law. So we needed to be able to take a stand on moral issues. But here's what he says. This is, go, this is John MacArthur again, and this is what I love. But those external things must flow from a right internal life and attitudes if they are to serve and please God. That has always been God's way, end quote. So when you call your representative on the phone, you know, hope, I hope that it's, out of an attitude that wants to serve and please God and wants them to do the same. I love the words of 
I love the words of uh, 1 Samuel 16, 17, the words of Yahweh who spoke to Samuel, do not look, speaking of the king, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him, speaking of Saul. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. It's the heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's about the hearts. Beloved, Jesus' way, the way of the kingdom, has not changed in the 21st century. When, when the century turned over, what, 23 years ago, it didn't change all of a sudden. When the internet became a thing and Twitter became a thing, it didn't change. It didn't change. These things still apply. I hope you realize that. Let's look at the third critical landscape that Jesus had in view. You need to grasp Jesus' view of the biblical landscape. Now, as we have seen that Jesus goes up, on the, uh, goes up on the mountain to teach His disciples, in effect, I've argued that He's giving the law of the coming kingdom. Now, here's the question that need, we need to answer. How does the law, this law, the law of the kingdom, relate to the Old Testament? Specifically, how does it relate to the Mosaic law? We need to recognize that Jesus' new message was simply a reaffirmation of the Old Testament method, message. Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. Yet, the emphasis on the gospel of grace was completely different from the understanding of the law taught by the religious establishment. The religious establishment was dominated, as we've said, by the, the Pharisees. They taught a harsh interpretation of the law that didn't capture the heart of the law. Their harsh and unloving interpretation and application of the law was not God's heart at all. They didn't reflect what, what Moses and, and David and the prophets had, had revealed in the Old Testament and other writers. Therefore, Jesus' message flew in the face of these Jewish traditions that the Pharisees upheld. In other words, in other words, as Jesus surveyed the landscape of Jewish traditions, he saw that it didn't reflect the heart of the lawgiver. Israel had, had disobeyed Yahweh, and they had completely missed the point. If you, you may recall in Deuteronomy 31, and from your Bible reading, if not, I'll, I want to bring it to your attention, as Israel ready to enter the promised land. Moses had, had warned them that they would disobey Yahweh and he would forsake them and, and hide his face from them. That's Deuteronomy 31, 16-17. And, and, and fittingly, this warning that Moses gave them in Deuteronomy is reiterated in the last message of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, 4-6. Uh, uh, yet, in, in all these warnings that God had given, He had also promised restoration and blessing. And, and back in Deuteronomy 30, 1-3, it says, So it will be when all these things have, have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and, and you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh, your God, has banished you, and you return to Yahweh, your God, and listen to His voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I'm commanding you today, and you and your sons, then Yahweh, your God, will return to you, return you from captivity and will return His compassion on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh, your God, has scattered, has scattered you. Therefore, 
It is fitting then that Jesus' first message of the New Testament begins with a promise of blessing. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted on and on. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, the Old Testament is characterized by Mount Sinai with its law, its thunder and lightning, and its warnings of judgment and cursing. The New Testament, on the other hand, is characterized by Mount Zion with its grace, its salvation and healing, and its promises of peace and blessing. But that was all promised in the Old Testament. I would argue that the Old Testament showed man's need for grace. Salvation was never meant to be by works of the law. It was never meant to be by what I do to please God. It was always, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, it was always by grace through faith. You see, the Old Testament saints weren't saved by their works. They weren't saved by works of the law. They weren't saved by the things that they did. They were saved by their belief in Yahweh, by His grace. Yet, the religious establishment had missed that. They had twisted God's law into something that was almost unrecognizable. Church, we can't miss man's tendency to make salvation a matter of his works. That is our tendency. That is our tendency, is to, is to make it a matter of our works. Our hearts are constantly comparing ourselves. Our, our hearts are all constantly comparing ourselves even to one another. We constantly want to ask, are we good enough? And we're also comparing ourselves and asking, well, what about other people? And these questions lead us down the same legalistic road that the Pharisees were on. And Jesus knew that as He ascended that mountain. Let's look at the fourth critical landscape that Jesus, that Jesus had in view. You need to grasp Jesus' view of the political landscape. In last week's sermon, I called, this, this, I called the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' kingdom manifesto. The word manifesto can bring the idea, the idea of militants militancy to mind. This would have been right up the alley of of the zealots, but as Jesus ascended the mountain to give this sermon, he had something completely different in mind. The Jews had long expected a military and and political leader who would deliver them from under the uh, Gentile Romans, Uh, that that this this, uh, political leader would establish a political realm or kingdom where the Jews could prosper. This, this Messiah that they had envisioned, a Messiah that was made in their own image, would be a greater military leader than, than David. He would lead them to greater prosper, prosperity than Solomon, and he would be a greater prophet than Moses. Now, these things are ultimately true. They are ultimately true. We see them in the, on the pages of Scripture. But they, uh, they understood these things from an external and worldly point of view. They wanted to make Jesus into a king made into their own image. They wanted him to be their kind of leader. They wanted a leader who would deliver them militarily. Instead, he came to deliver them from their sins. They wanted a leader who would give them great prosperity. Instead, he came to show them the nature of true riches. They wanted him to be a great prophet Instead, He came to be their Messiah. He came to be their true King. 
So as Jesus ascended the mountain, Jesus envisioned a completely different kingdom than the Jews were envisioning. His words showed that he wouldn't allow them to mistake him for the kind of king that they wanted. The Sermon on the Mount proved that Jesus' kingdom, again, is not of this world. And I can promise you, as we study this Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that it is the answer that we need to the situations that we're facing even today. I love Jesus' answer to Pilate as he faced the cross. In John 18.36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. It's not from here. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, you need to recognize that Jesus was concerned about moral matters that showed the true nature of man's heart. He was not concerned about changing the world through man's politics, through social reform. That was not his, that was not his, that was not his mission. If he were here, physically here today, physically, I don't think he would be a Christian nationalist, and I don't think he would be a social justice warrior. Matter of fact, I know he wouldn't be. He is here, present here spiritually. Revelation 1 tells us he's walking among the, the churches even today. I believe he is here spiritually. He is hearing every word that's being preached, every word that's being said. He's hearing every thought of every person sitting here today. And I can tell you, uh, according to his word, he is more concerned about the internal than, than uh, over and above the external. He is more concerned about your heart than he is about your social activism and your political standing. He doesn't care about your political standing other than how it reflects your heart. Whether you vote Republican, whether you vote Democrat, or whether you vote whatever you vote, he doesn't, that, that, it, all that matters ultimately is, is your heart. He also cares how you worship him. He also cares how you worship Him and how you treat others. He cares more about those things than He does about your standing in this world. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. He says this, But consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised He has chosen, God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, and so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's those truths that He presents Those truths about righteousness and sanctification and true redemption, it's those things that we need to boast in. Church, it is easy, it's so easy to fall for the world's lies. So easy. So easy. 
Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is still not of this world. That hasn't changed in the past 2,000 years. We cannot bring God's kingdom down by political prowess or by military might. And God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom, the most revered are the lowliest. We see that over and over in Scripture. The lowliest according to the world. The humble. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the lowly. That's why the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, as Jesus ascended the mountain and surveyed the political landscape, he was prepared to deliver a sermon that was completely antithetical to the world because his thoughts are not our thoughts. And our thoughts, His ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, for as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How dare us drag the world system into the church? In Jesus' estimation, men like John the Baptist were the greatest who ever lived. He even says it, Matthew 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, John was considered a failure and an outcast of the world, yet Jesus says, said that no one has arisen who is greater at this point. And John lived in the wilderness. He dressed in camel's hair. He ate locust and wild honey. He lived according to God's will. He was a nobody and would have been sneered at. He was sneered at by Jerusalem. He would certainly be out of place in any American church, yet Jesus heaps praise on him. Think about that. And I'm not telling you guys to go out and Purchase your camel hair suit. That'd be weird. If you don't, if, if you don't understand, don't, go back and listen to that sermon. Those sermons, beloved. These truths haven't changed. The world reveres military might and economic, economic prowess. The world teaches you how to be, how to look good, and how to be successful. This is not the way of the kingdom. And we are not to live according to the world, but according to the kingdom. Now, I hope you'll come and come to see and, and understand God's way in the coming weeks and months as we study this masterpiece. This is a masterpiece. The Sermon on the Mount is an absolute masterpiece. And I don't mean that in a worldly way. I just want to say as we turn the corner toward the Lord's table this morning. I just want to speak briefly to those who are here today and don't know the Lord, have not turned to Christ in saving faith. I want you to recognize that the truths that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, the truths of Scripture, they won't make sense to you. You can't understand them. If you're here today and you don't know Him, you can't understand them because you are dead to them. The Bible teaches that if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. If you've not believed in Jesus, then 
your natural tendency is to walk according to the ways of this world. That's who you are. You walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. Uh, you, you abide by the Spirit that is now working amongst this world, uh, what the Bible calls the sons of, of disobedience. Perhaps God is calling you to believe. Perhaps as you're sitting there right now, He's tugging at you. The Holy Spirit is awakening, awakening you even now. I beg you, if, if that's the case, I beg you to yield to this call of the Holy Spirit. I beg you to turn to Christ. If you turn to Him, He will, he will not disappoint. He will save you by His grace. Salvation and faith is God's gift if you would only believe in Him and believe in His sin-atoning sacrifice on the cross. You don't even have to fully understand that. Just trust that He has died for your sins. Just trust He's faithful. He's righteous. Some of you, many of you, I, I am persuaded have already believed. And if you're in that camp, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're about to observe the Lord's table. And in doing so, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, I want you to take a few moments. I want you to take a few moments to reflect upon what Christ has accomplished in going to the cross. He, he lived the perfect life. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the requirements of law. Therefore, when He went to the cross, He didn't die for any sin that He had committed. He took, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, He took upon Himself, uh, sin upon Himself, and, and He bore the wrath of the Father for sin. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Just listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. 18-21. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. If you're here today, that's the message that we give to you. Be reconciled to Him by, uh, by faith in Him uh, through, the, through the work on the cross. Through Christ's work on the cross. But if you're here today and you know Him, I'm persuaded that you believe that He made Him who knew no sin. This is 521. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He fulfilled the law. We fell short. We, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ's has fulfilled the requirements of the law so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That what He has done is accredited or credited to our account. So, here in just a moment, we're going to partake. I'm going to ask the, um, I think Justin and Roberta to come up and, and lead us.
As they're coming up, I want, um, I want you to examine yourself. Later in that same letter of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says, he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Then he says, examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Christ, uh, Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Here's the question. Do you love Christ? Are you following His ways? Are you following His ways? We, we're going to see those. We're going to see those more and more in the Sermon on the Mount. Or are you more like the Pharisees? You follow tradition. You, you are meticulous in the works that you do. Or are you more like the Sadducees or the, or the Zealots? You're, you're zealous about activism. Now the question is, do you love Christ? That's the question. Do you love His ways? Are you confessing sin? I love 1 John 1.9. I love it. It's the great, one of the greatest verses. Such a comfort to my heart. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you not realize how much truth is packed into that one verse? 